almost perfect, but not quite. Those were the words of Mary Hume at her seventh birthday party, looking round the ribboned room. This tablecloth is pink and white, almost perfect, but not quite. Almost perfect, but not quite. Those were the words of grown-up Mary, talking about her handsome beau. The one she wasn't going to marry squeezes me a bit too tight. Almost perfect, but not quite. Almost perfect, but not quite. Those were the words of old Miss Hume, teaching in the seventh grade, grading papers in the gloom, late at night up in her room. They never crossed their T's just right. Almost perfect, but not quite. 98, the day she died, complaining about the spotless floor. People shook their heads and sighed, guess that she'll like heaven more. Up went her soul on feathered wings, out the door, up, out of sight. Another voice from heaven came. Almost perfect, but not quite. Last week, you'll remember that we saw the story of someone who got caught up in the kingdom. Somebody who was found himself in Jesus' orbit and couldn't get away. Someone who was a little bit curious, maybe a little suspicious, certainly a little bit excited about Jesus' ministry. And then was confronted with Jesus' ministry, confronted with his, his word, confronted by the kingdom. This man, Simon Peter, had to respond And he said, yes, Lord, I will follow you. And then he left everything and followed Jesus. Today we're going to see a group of people where the same thing happens. They're caught up a little bit in Jesus' orbit. They find themselves confronted by him. And yet, at the critical moment, when they're called to respond, they say, Almost perfect, but not quite. Jesus, your ministry, your kingdom, is almost perfect, but not quite. Luke 5, 27 to 39, and the title of today's message is Almost Perfect, But Not Quite. If everyone would please stand, let's read the text together. After these things, and we'll talk a little bit about those things, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So Levi left everything, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast, him, Jesus, a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast? While the bridegroom is with them. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Then Jesus spoke a parable to them. 
No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins themselves will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and that way both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says, the old is better. You may be seated. After these things... The first time in Luke's gospel that we meet the Pharisees is actually just a few verses before this. It's in uh, 517. It's the story of Luke or of Jesus healing the paralytic man. And the Pharisees are kind of, they're, they're, they're sitting in this story and they're t- sort of watching what Jesus is doing. And Jesus comes to, to heal the man and they say, wait, 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 it's the Sabbath. You, you can't do that. And then Jesus says, or no, I'm sorry, uh, Jesus forgives the man's sins, right? The man, the man says, you know, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, I forgive your sins. And the Pharisees get very upset, right? They say, who are you to forgive sins? And then Jesus says, well, okay, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven, but watch this. And then he says, man, take up your mat and walk. And the paralytic stands up and walks. And it says everyone, including the Pharisees, are astonished. And they praise God. It's interesting. We're used to thinking of the Pharisees as sort of the bad guys in the gospel. And I want to suggest to you that eventually they will be the bad guys. But when Luke starts out, they're not. They're, they're just like you and me. They're, they're, they're good folks trying to make their way. And they're confronted by Jesus' ministry. And they're interested. They're curious. They're a little bit suspicious but maybe hopeful. And that's what we have in your first uh, part of your note sheet. The Pharisees, they're looking for a good Messiah. When they meet Jesus, they're suspicious, but hopeful. They see him do this thing, your sins are forgiven, and they say, whoa, 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 don't blaspheme Jesus. But as soon as Jesus heals the man, they say, but wait, maybe he's real. Maybe he does have the power to forgive sins. They're astonished. They praise God, but they're still curious. And so the Pharisees begin maybe trailing Jesus, following him around, trying to decide whether or not he's one of them, whether or not these two groups, Jesus' followers and the Pharisees, can get together and be a part of a new renewal movement in Israel, claiming the kingdom of God. The Pharisees are looking for the same thing that Simon Peter and Levi are looking for. So after those things happened, he went out and sees a tax collector named Levi. And he said to him, Levi, follow me. Levi rises up, leaves everything, and follows him. A very strange idea. You notice that he throws a party right after this. So he didn't leave everything, right? He still has his house. And one of the ways we can think about this is when Luke says leave everything, uh, it's not so much that uh, you don't have stuff anymore. It's really more that your stuff, whatever it may be, is 100% committed to the kingdom of God. So when Levi leaves everything, not only is he quitting his job and moving on, but whatever he does have is now put in the service of the kingdom. And so the first thing he does is he throws a great feast, a huge party. Now, a great feast, if uh, in Greco-Roman culture, the way that Luke sets this up and some of the, the ways that we get, it's, a, it's almost like a stock scene in ancient literature. It's what's called, a practice called the symposia. Um, in the ancient, in the Greco-Roman world, there was a way that you could, you know, have parties, and it was sort of set up, it was structured so that the parties would always follow the same type of, of uh, 
event structure. And what would happen was a person, a patron, someone of, 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 good, of means, would find someone that they thought was really special, and they would invite that person, an honored guest. Usually uh, in Greco-Roman culture, this would be an itinerant philosopher, someone who travels from town to town telling people whatever he or she thinks is the way the world is. And so a rich person would see that a new person had come to town, somebody with something special to say, and they'd say, please, uh, come, come, I'll, I'll host you, and probably would uh, put that person up, give them you know, a place to stay, maybe even a stipend of some sort, and it, these itinerant philosophers could even live with uh, patrons for, for many, many years, um, although that was a little more rare. And then what the, the patron would do is they would have this, this special person, a great feast is coming, out, coming up, and would send out invitations. So everybody comes, and they sit down, they sit at the, feet, at the, at the table, and everyone reclines to eat. And then the, the special honored guest begins a disquisition, a long speech about whatever it is that this person knows really well. And it doesn't have to be a philosopher. It could be somebody who maybe has news from somewhere else in the empire. It could be uh, many different things. But whatever this person has, it's something that's special. It's something new. And the idea is that everyone comes and gets to hang out, have great food, great drink, and they get to listen to what this guy or lady has to say. And what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to listen. And during the disquisition, it's, it's polite, it's appropriate for different people at the, at the table to ask questions. You know, well... Philoctetes, you suggest that the definition of a hero is this, this, and this. But, but surely, and, and, and so a, a dialogue develops. But the dialogue surrounds the topic that the special honored guest brings. And then after dinner's over, everybody uh, exits the, the dinner and they get to go to another place where they're allowed to discuss amongst each other and possibly with the special guest the topic of the night's dinner. Now, this is really honest. It's very structured, but it's no different than what you and I do when we think about a party. See, a party is not about, what, learning something new, although it's nice if that happens. Really, what, what is a party about? A party is about, what, making new friends and networking, right? When you get invited to a party, hopefully there's some folks you don't know, and if you're interested in business, you're going to go, and if you're lucky, if you're good, you're able to start glad-handing, and you have something to talk about, and you get to meet this person, you get to meet that person. New friendships develop around the table and around conversation. New uh, possibilities for business move forward, and that's the second uh, thing on your outline, the symposia, a chance for, in 21st century terms, new friends and or networking. And so, you know, I mean, this is, this is really awkward for a lot of people. The, the sad thing in American culture is that in American culture, we're just expected to kind of come up with our own thing, right? So when I go to a party, the, the, whether or not I'm going to have a good party it really depends on my ability to strike up conversations with people, to, to carry on and to talk about this and that and appear witty and fun, right? And if I'm not that person, parties in America are really hard. Because you go and you're, you're a wallflower. I mean, a lot of you probably, you know, wall I spent my days as a wallflower. Don't, I mean, I was real insecure in junior high and high school and college and Japan and grad school and here. <laughs> but I mean, so, so some of you can relate to me. You get to a party and you're like, oh, okay. And, but some of you are good at it. Some of you know the right way to do it, right? The right way to do it is to walk up to someone you don't know and be like, wow, how about that Super Bowl? Right? I mean, like, what a disaster that was. And then that person, because they're plugged into the social network, goes, oh, I know. 
I, I was shocked that the, the Broncos couldn't develop a working offense. Who knew that the Legion of Boom was so boom-like? You know, and, and then, and then a, a conversation begins, right? Because you have something in common. Well, that's in America. In America, it's all on you. And if you have your, your, your fingers on the pulse of what's happening, you can probably come up with a decent way to get to know folks. Well, in the ancient world, they understood that this could be problematic. And so they set up a structured environment called the symposia to help break the ice. So after the dinner, you already know what you're going to talk about because you've just been listening to this honored guest, really good speaker, talking about this and that. And so you can walk up to somebody you don't know and be like, hey, man, I've seen you around town. Um, What did you think about what Philoctetes said? And then the person is, oh, you know, Philoctetes, he's right about this, he's wrong about that. I agree. Indeed. You are so wise. <laughs> really? You think so? Hey, I've got a really, you know, good business going. Maybe you want to get involved. I do. You can see how this works, right? It's a, it's a, it's a new friends networking event. Which isn't to say that we're not interested in what the special guest has to say. It's to say that in general, in the symposia, in this, in this uh, cultural event, what the guest has to say, the honored guest has to say, is secondary to the primary purpose of the event. And that is to bring people together. It's to bring people together. So how did Levi's party go? Not well. In fact, it was kind of a disaster. Levi invites all of his friends, people that he knows, and he invites more. All and sundry are welcome. In fact, scribes and Pharisees are welcomed into this banquet. And also his friends, the tax collectors, and Luke calls them others. You'll notice that those others are then called by the Pharisees sinners. The Pharisees decide who, what these people are going to be called. And he brings them all into this feast because Levi has understood something about the kingdom of God and Jesus Jesus is open arms. He's welcoming. And so Levi wants to emulate that and and do the same thing. And so he does what he knows to do. Throw a symposia. Have Jesus get there. Maybe Jesus is going to be at at the table speaking about the kingdom of God as he's done in the marketplaces and the fields. And last week we saw uh, at the Sea of Galilee. Maybe Jesus will get to tell people what the kingdom of God is like. And just as Jesus is about to enter into his disquisition, the Pharisees rise up and say, what's going on here? This is unacceptable, Levi. This is a terrible part. Jesus, you sit down for a second. Yeah, we have something to say here. Levi, look, you've had a a conversion experience. Great. You know, we're excited about that. We really are. Um, We love the fact that you've left, you know, your tax collecting thing, and and now you're welcoming. But, But look at these people. And they look at Jesus and they're like, how, how dare you? What are you thinking? Jesus, you've got a really good thing going here. They're actually worried about him at this point. They're trying to set Jesus back on the path. Jesus, you can't, you can't do this. Uh, these, these people, they're going to they're gonna bring you down. They're going to ruin your movement. How can you sit with tax collectors and sinners? It's interesting what they, uh, what they object to. They object to uh, table companionship, right? That these people are here 
And then uh, the second objection is then, uh, then they said to him, they, uh, it's probably not the Pharisees, maybe it's uh, the scribes or you know, somebody who's thinking, that, oh yeah, the Pharisees have a good point. And then they point out a second problem uh, that the Pharisees, by the way, will agree with. And they say, what about the fasting? What about the praying, Jesus? You know, so there's two, there's two issues that are brought up. There's the issue of table companionship. How can you sit with these people, Jesus? And then the second issue is, how come your disciples don't do the right stuff, Jesus? They're not, they're not fasting. Uh, they're eating and drinking. This is ridiculous. Well, the Pharisees are, um, when they say that, that they're worried about sitting down to a ta- uh, table with tax collectors and sinners, they're worried about what's called ritual purity. Uh, the Pharisees believe that the same um, rules of purity that take place in the temple should be extended everywhere in one's life. It should be extended, extended to the household and also extended to the table. And the reason this is problematic is that if you go to the temple and you want to worship, you have to be totally cleansed. You have to be completely cleansed. You can't be, have any contact with somebody who does bad stuff and doesn't repent. You can't have any contact with somebody who's in unseemly or who has sullied their hands with uh, pork or any other of the um, food laws. And the worry is, is that if you're, you're sitting at table and, you, and someone passes you uh, the plate, when you, when you touch the plate that they've touched, their impurity comes off onto you and you're no longer acceptable for temple worship. And so it's not that the Pharisees don't have any interaction with uh, people like tax collectors and sinners. They do, but they can't have them at table because that's a place where they can get infected by ritual impurity. And if they're ritually impure, their worship and their prayers to God from their perspective are no longer acceptable. And so they're saying, Jesus, it's interesting, right? You know, Jesus, you're dealing with tax collectors and sinners. They're not saying Jesus is a sinner. Jesus, they think of him as a righteous dude. That's, that's funny. They think of him as a righteous man. Uh, he's in line with everything, and yet he's in danger of becoming like the people he's with. He's in danger of having his ministry destroyed because he shares the same impurity that the people he, of the people he's sitting with. Fasting. Pharisees are known at, the, at this time for fasting twice a week. In fact, if you read the Didache, which is uh, it's an early Christian text, it's called the, the Teaching of the Apostles, uh, very early text, not brought into the scriptures for many reasons, and if you read it, you'll, you'll pick them up quickly. But one of the things that the Didache says is that it says, the Pharisees and the Jews, they fast on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So it's a, sort of a well-known thing. And they say, ah, but Christians, freed from the law. We don't have to do that. Christians fast on Mondays and Wednesdays. It's a, it's a, it's a weird text. Not surprising that uh, we don't receive it as inspired. Nevertheless, uh, we, we are, know from this text that um, fasting is a normal part of the Pharisees' life. And fasting signifies two things. It's first a, um, a measure of dissatisfaction with the status quo. Right? You don't fast because things are going great. In fact, has anyone here done a fast? Oof. Oh man, we do not pass the Pharisees' test for holiness. The Pharisees do not want to come and sit with you in the pews, you dirty people. Uh, well, if you do a fast, typically the reason you're doing it is because something's wrong. 
right? A fast is sort of a way for us to say, hey, God, look, this is not good what's going on here, and we need a change. Another reason that they're probably doing it is because they are imitating in some ways what we see of Jesus in the desert wilderness when Jesus fasts for 40 days. Uh, Jesus is doing that to prove that he doesn't need bread, but instead relies on the word of God. In a lot of ways, what the Pharisees and obviously John's disciples are doing are good things. They're saying, they're saying look, the Pharisees, they're, they're waiting for the Messiah. They're saying, God, we are not pleased with the status quo. We need someone to come and free us from our political and religious elites. We need someone to set up a kingdom that we can get behind. And so they fast to get God's attention. And they're worried because they see Jesus' ministry and they say, well, I mean, th- these practices, these, these sitting down with the tax collectors and sinners, this refusal to fast, is he really committed to God? You see, the Pharisees, they take practices like who they sit at table with, when they fast, and how they fast. They take these practices and they use them as boundary markers to say, this is us, and we are the people who are committed to God, and everything else is everybody else, the people who aren't truly committed to God. In fact, the third thing on your note sheet The questions about table companions and fasting are really about the markers that demonstrate one's commitment to God. The Pharisees are worried that Jesus doesn't have the kind of life that demonstrates true, relentless, unending commitment to God. They look at his ministry and they say, almost perfect, but not quite. Jesus is about to sit down at table, and he's about to tell the good news of the kingdom. And they stand up and they say, we don't want to hear it. Almost perfect, but not quite. Your words don't matter here. Jesus tries to get the kingdom teaching in between, right? If you look at his responses. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus says, who do you think I came for? What did you expect the Messiah to do, guys? To seek and save the lost. The Messiah is going to be a doctor the way that God has always been a doctor. Fixing, healing us. And in this case, healing means repentance. I didn't come to hang out with people like me. I came out to find people like Levi and bring them in. Do you hear the kingdom, Pharisees? No! Why aren't you fasting, Jesus? Jesus. And Jesus says, do you know who you're with? The bridegroom is here. And for those of us who are familiar with the church, we know that the church is imaged as Christ being the husband and the church being the bride. Jesus is with his people. And when you're at a wedding, the bride and the bridegroom, bridegroom and bride together, when you're at a wedding, you celebrate. You eat, you drink, you don't fast. There's nothing wrong with the status quo right now. Pharisees, open your eyes. You are a witness to the coming of the Son of God. Why? This is the consummation of all things. This is the end of all history right now in your midst. There's no, there's no fasting right now. This is the time for celebration. And yeah, it's the case that the bridegroom is going to go away for a while. And when that comes, 
Resume your fasting, Pharisees, but see who you're with right now. Well, the Pharisees and the scribes, they pipe down. We can, we can resume our party now. I guess that maybe they're in the corner, like, ugh. Maybe it was one of their fast days, right? Maybe it's Tuesday, and they're like, fine, get your eating done with. We're over here being holy. And then Jesus, his teaching is this very strange set of parables. Let's pick them up in verse 36. Then he spoke a parable to them. That's everybody who's there. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear. Uh, this is because they're all dealing with cotton. If you, I mean, it's not really cotton, but it, the same principle applies. Um, over the years, I have had, an, well, you'll notice that I only wear one suit. Um, that's because I only have one suit, because all the rest, and for that matter, shirts, pants, I've got basically one pair of everything that fits. And this isn't just because, this isn't because I'm getting bigger. I'm not. I'm the same size you've always seen. If, if you think that that's what's going on, you're wrong. Uh, no, the problem is, is that uh, when Erin does the dryer, she just cranks that thing to full heat and just shrinks the heck out of those things. So when I try to put my pants, I'm like, what's going on? This, this fit two, three years ago, but now, so, oh, I see. Aaron threw it in the dryer again. Oh, Aaron. <laughs> well, it's the same thing that happens in uh, the ancient Near East. The, the materials that they have, uh, they shrink. And so if you, if you took like a new piece of material, a new piece of cloth, and you stuck it um, on a rip in your old clothes, you'd actually be doing more damage to your pants because as that cloth shrinks, it tears a bigger hole in the larger piece of garment. And not only that, Jesus says, but hey, I mean, if you put a new piece of cloth on an old garment, they don't match. That's because they don't have, you know, we've got, we've got like Hobby Lobby and all. Isn't that where you go to get material and cloth? I feel like that, that's a big thing, you know, crafting and all of that and material and it matches and not much of a matcher myself, but I understand the principle. So yeah, if you put something new on something old, it just looks ugly, right? That's why it's a joke that professors have patches on their, their elbows, because the patches always look awful, because professors are people who don't know fashion. They're just like, oh, fix the hole. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. Well, wineskins were typically made out of goat skin. So you skin a goat, probably two or three pelts. You sew them together, and I guess you put liquid into that. I hope that they clean it somehow, because that sounds disgusting. Uh, nevertheless, so then you, you fill it up with wine. And the interesting thing about wine, and, and we know this uh, from our own culture, is that it continues to ferment over time once it's been bottled. Right? That's why you have to have a really you know, strong cork. Uh, because what fermentation does is it releases carbon dioxide into the air. So pressure increases over time. Now our wines are much, much better at this than theirs because we have, I don't know, more experience, more better wine-making materials and talking about stuff I don't understand. Uh, <laughs> nevertheless, in, 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 their, in their time, you put your wine into the wineskin, and over time it expands, right? But the nice thing about goat skins is that goat skins will stretch too. And so over time, you know that your wineskin is right. It's ready when it's a big, 
you know, it's big, it's tight, right? And so you pour out all that wine, and then you put a new wine in, and you cork it back up, and then what happens? The fermentation takes place, and like a balloon with too much air, it pops. It destroys the whole wineskin. And so new wine and old wineskins don't belong together. This has been, uh, this text has been the, well, it's still going on. There's a fierce debate raging as to who is what. Because Jesus is telling a parable. And usually when we read parables, we try to say, oh, the new wine, that's Jesus. Or the new wine, that's the Pharisees. Right? The new cloth, that's Jesus. The old cloth, that's Pharisees. We try to assign you know, the symbol and the meaning of the symbol, right? Well, there's a lot of questions about this. Um, probably in the Protestant tradition, the most common reading is that uh, the new wine and the new material, that's Jesus and his followers, right? Because they're doing something new, something radical, a new ministry, a new uh, thing. And in fact, it's, you know, the old covenant is over with. The new covenant is here. The new covenant of grace and freedom and acceptance Versus the old covenant that the Pharisees represent, which is law and oppression and exclusion, and so that's how most people read it. They say that the old wine, or the new wines, the new wine and the um, and the new cloth, that's the same thing, and it repre- represents Jesus. Other people, uh, including John Calvin, if you're interested, think it's switched around. You see, these people think that the old wine and the old material, that's Jesus and his followers. And the reason is, is because Luke is always showing how Jesus' ministry is in complete continuity with the character and action of Israel's God. Uh, we've seen that through a number of our sermons on this text, or on, in Luke, because we've seen how Luke is always saying, well, Jesus is like Samuel, or Jesus proclaimed this oracle from Isaiah. Jesus is in complete continuity with Israel's God. You think Jesus is doing something new? No, it looks new because he's finally getting God right. It's really all the stuff that God's always been about, but now someone's actually living it. The new, the, 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 the different way of doing things, that's the Pharisees. That's, that's people who say, no, this is how God's to be understood. No, 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 no. I, I don't want to weigh in. I'm scared. Okay, I will. Okay, I know, I'm going to, okay, someone's going to disagree, that's fine. I'm going to go with the second way. I'm going to say that, that the old wine and the old cloth, that's Jesus and his movement. And the new wine and the, um, the new cloth, that's the Pharisees. And the reason I lean that way is because that last line where Jesus, uh, Jesus says, And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. This is a common proverb in the ancient Near East. New, new wine, not as good as old wine. So I think that Jesus is kind of aligning himself with the old one. I want to suggest to you this, though. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who's the wine and who's the cloth. None of those things make a difference. Because what the meaning of these, of these parables is, is that we've got two things here. And at first glance, they look like they go together. But if you really take a look you see that they don't fit. You see, they're both wines. Surely they'll go in wineskins, right? It's, they're both cloth. Surely they'll make good pants. 
on outward appearances, the Pharisees and their ministry to renew God, uh, God's uh, call in the world, that looks very much like Jesus' ministry. But then if you zero in, Jesus realizes at this, di- at this dinner table that it's not going to work. Why? Because the Pharisees keep saying, Jesus, you're almost perfect, but not quite. Jesus, you're cloth, but you're the wrong kind of cloth. Jesus, you're wine, just like we're wine, but you're the wrong kind of wine. And Jesus turns around and says, you know what? You're almost perfect, but not quite for the kingdom. You see, look at my man Levi right here. He's perfect for this movement. Why? Because Levi looks inside and says, I'm no good, and I need to be saved. I'm sick. I need a doctor. This is the kind of guy I'm looking for. You guys don't need anything. No, what you need is someone who's just like you, who doesn't need to change at all. Pharisees, you're almost perfect. You're ju- almost right. You want to be committed to God. You want to do the right things. You want to see the kingdom come. You're almost right for this movement, but not quite. Why? Because you've erected the wrong boundaries. See, guys, um, there's no human community that can exist without boundaries. The Pharisees, they're trying to figure out who are the people who belong in the kingdom, right? And they're looking for boundaries that mark out kingdom kind of people versus everybody else. And what are those markers? Fasting. Uh, Sitting down at table with the right people. Those are just a few. And as we go through Luke, we'll see more and more of what they think to be the right kind of boundaries. Yeah, you need boundaries, otherwise you don't know us versus them. If we had no boundaries in this church then there would be no ability for anybody to say, you know what, that's wrong and God doesn't like it. In fact, Jesus, people, a lot, of, a, lot of these, a lot of these, I would say bad interpreters of the scriptures, they want to say, oh, God's just about accepting everyone. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, God just loves you as you are. And then they never take the next step that says, God wants to change you. Jesus says, I'm looking for the people who need repentance and know it. I'm looking for people who know they're sick. The problem with the Pharisees is that they pick the wrong markers. They pick the wrong things to say, this is what makes you fit for the kingdom, this is what makes you not fit. And they're not even willing to hear Jesus out when he sits at the table, honored guests, and is about to tell them. They've already decided he's wrong. We need to know from now on whether or not we're like the Pharisees, almost perfect for the kingdom, but not quite. We need to find out 
what kind of people we are. Because we, like the Pharisees and like Jesus, are going to have boundary markers that show us versus them. We need to know who really is committed to the kingdom of God. Those are real, good, honest questions to ask. The real question is, what are the right markers? What are the practices and the characteristics of the people that Jesus is calling, Jesus is looking for? And I'm going to suggest to you that we're not going to get that today. That's going to be all the way through Luke. We're going to be looking for the kinds of things that Jesus is calling out. I want to suggest two today. People who know they're sick and people who are generous. That's Levi. Jesus walks up and says, hey Levi, come here. And Levi says, yeah, this isn't good. And then Levi says, I want to take the stuff that I have and I want to get all my old friends and I want to give them a chance to do the same thing I've just done. So Jesus, you take my house. I'm going to bring in as many people as I can feed. I'm going to put it all right there. And then Jesus, you tell them what's up. You're the special guest. He repents. He knows he's sick. He repents. And then he's generous. Those are, he's a kingdom kind of guy. Le- Jesus looks at Levi and says, you're the kind of guy I want on my team. You know what? You're just right. You're perfect for this ministry. But other people who set up other boundary markers, boundary markers that aren't in keeping with who Jesus is, Jesus looks at them and says, eh, I love where your head's at, but you're not quite there. 98, the day she died, complaining about the spotless floor. See, she's looking at, you know, the tax collectors and the sinners, and she's like, oh, it could have been cleaner. People shook their heads and sighed, Guess that she'll like heaven more. When the kingdom of God springs in on these Pharisees, then they'll finally be satisfied. It'll finally look just the way it ought to. Up went her soul on feathered wings, out the door, up out of sight. Then another voice from heaven came. Almost perfect. But not quite. Friends, as we encounter Luke, we're looking for these kingdom moments. Let's look for the markers of kingdom kind of people. Let's recognize that we're sick. We're in need of repentance. It doesn't matter where you are right now in your life. You still have things that need to be shaved off, cut away. Let's look for ways that we can be generous, open arms, giving people. Let's be Levi's. Let's be Simon Peter's. Let's not be Pharisees. And then when Jesus looks at us, he'll say, you know what? You're just the kind of people I'm looking for. Instead of saying almost perfect, but not quite. Father, we come to you as people who are in need of repentance again. We come to you as people who want to hear you, who want to be more and more like you, who want to mark out our community the right ways God, strip from us all of the kinds of markers that we have that that don't really, that are just excluding people we don't like. Instead, God, let us put up markers and boundaries that reflect your true divine character instead. God, let us open up our, our doors, expand the guest list, invite people of all sorts to come and be with us, and and just see if they're your kingdom people or not. Protect us from the sin of the Pharisees that we won't look around and around 
and always be saying almost perfect but not quite. God, instead make us generous kingdom people who welcome you and welcome the good news of your kingdom. This is your party, God. This is your feast. And we confess that we are just the people you've invited. In your son's name we pray. Amen.